Good morning, church. Today's reading is Romans 8, 28 through 32. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? These are the words of our Lord. Happy New Year. Good to see you guys. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. We just finished up really an amazing year. And we thank you so much for your participation in this last year by your generosity and faithfulness and sacrifices. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. New year, new hope. Looks like you guys are the faithful ones, huh? I mean, first weekend of the year, you guys are in church. Good job. Good job. I love it. I want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live also right now. Thank you for joining us. And so, New Year, New Hope, our text that was just read, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 32. Also grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along. Here's the intro. Here's the questions that I often ask. I love, I love new beginnings like New Year's because it reminds me that we have a God of new beginnings. That's what he's all about. And so it causes me to do some reflecting. Anybody do reflecting around this time of the year, kind of looking at the past, look where you are, look where you may want to go. And so here's the first question. It's on your notes. How do we overcome our past? That's a good question. Don't want to carry that baggage into the present and the, into the future. How do you overcome your past, our past, truly enjoy the present, and be full of hope for the future? Now, it's not, it's not the suffering in this fallen world. We can all agree with that. There's a lot of suffering in our fallen world that we live in currently. There's a lot of good things, too. But there's a lot of suffering in this fallen world. It's not the suffering in this fallen world, but the bitterness, self-pity, and hopelessness about our suffering that destroys us. Now, each one of those represent past, present, and future. Past is represented by oftentimes bitterness. If we don't work through our past, we're going to become bitter about our past. What about the present? Well, we can complain about the present, and we can even be going to self-pity. We can create a level of self-pity, and then when it comes to the future, we can have a sense of hopelessness and despair and worry. It's not the suffering. It's the bitterness, self-pity, and hopelessness in our suffering, about our suffering that destroys us. So here's, here's what the Bible makes very clear. Yesterday's failures and hurts, today's burdens, and tomorrow's uncertainties are no match for God's amazing grace working for us, in us, and through us. 
And so there are three, three truths that we need to not just know as a concept, but as a reality in our heart. It's, it's part of our notes here to deal with our past, present, and future. The first one is that my bad things will work for my good. That has to do with our past. The next truth is the truly good things, my truly good things can never be taken from me. And the third truth is uh, the best things, my best things are yet to come, past, present, and future. That's where we're headed with this study. We'll unpack this uh, text here, Romans 8, 28 to 32. Keep your Bibles open if you have them there in front of you. But let's take that first one. My bad things will work out for my good. It has to do with our past. And that helps to eliminate bitterness. Let me just say something about bitterness. Bitterness is like a cancer. And not only does it, uh, not only will it bring trouble to you and eat away at your life, but it will cause problems within your relationships in general, in your life. It's like a cancer that eats away at us. And so this will help to eliminate that bitterness. Now, let me give you the context of this of these verses, Romans 8, 28 to 32. The whole chapter is about the spirit-filled life. And the word spirit refers to the Holy Spirit 30 times in the book of Romans, 30 times. So out of those 30 times, how many times do you think the Holy Spirit is mentioned here in chapter eight of Romans? Take a wild guess real quick. 10, okay, good guess, okay, not enough. 25, a little bit too much, but 20. So 30 times the Holy Spirit's mentioned in the book of Romans, 20 of those times in this chapter. Pretty significant chapter, would you say? In fact, he just, in chapter seven, he just talked about really, uh, I've often called it the portrait of a struggling Christian. The things I wanna do, I don't do. The things I don't wanna do, I find myself doing. Woe is me, oh my goodness, who's gonna help me? The Lord Jesus Christ is gonna help me. And then he goes into chapter eight to, to explain that, how we can live really that victorious life that Christ has called us to. Now, in the context of Romans 8, this is what I love about the gospel, this is what I love about the Bible. It doesn't trivialize our brokenness. It doesn't minimize our suffering. It it squares off with it. And it's not denial of reality, but it's an embracing of a much bigger reality. That is God in the midst of our our smaller reality that is suffering and difficulty. In fact, this chapter talks a lot about suffering. Verses 18 through 27 that precede our verses, he's talking about suffering, futility, groaning, and weakness. He goes all the way back to Genesis and talks about we live in a fallen world, Genesis 3. And the the whole earth is groaning and even says we're groaning because of the pain and the suffering, the difficulty. And then in verses 35 through 36, the verses that, that are after our text, he talks about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and then he kind of sums it up here. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a great slogan verse for the new year. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. He's just saying this is reality. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is one messed up place. And yet in the midst of this, he gives us phenomenal hope. He says in verse verse 28, so keep in mind that context, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, 
All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How many have memorized that verse? That's one of those memory verses. That's a great memory verse, by the way. That'd be a good verse to memorize this year. And uh, I memorized it in a little bit a different way, but it, it, it includes all the important points here. And we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's how I've memorized it. But it's the same thing. Now, we live in a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. We live at, at a greater comfort level than our ancestors. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no doubt. But far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. That's our culture. That's what we live in currently. C.S. Lewis has a great analogy that talks about the power of expectations. And this is what he writes, and I quote, If you're shown a hotel room you've been told is the honeymoon suite, your expectations will be high. If there's no plush carpet, spa, or champagne, you would be disappointed. On the other hand, if you've been told before the door opens that it's a jail cell, you'll be delighted to find even modest comforts. <laughs> Expectations. So as Christians living in modern Western society, we are often taught to expect the honeymoon suite when it comes to life. In fact, there's there's renowned preachers and teachers out there that would tell you that it's guaranteed, the honeymoon suite. It's called the health and wealth gospel. We don't embrace that, obviously, but it sets you up for, uh, it's almost an idealistic distortion, unrealistic expectations, and when you don't meet your expectations and your experience is down below those expectations, what's this gap between your experience and expectations? It's called disappointment, disillusionment despair even, sets you up for a lot of craziness. Now, one of the many reasons the first century church had such an impact on the culture was that they not only had a good theology of suffering, which a lot of churches in America today do not have a good theology for suffering, but they had a good theology of suffering, and their lives proved it because they suffered well. They knew how to suffer for the glory of God. Isn't that crazy? No. That's important. So here's what I want to do. Let's just, and this is one of the ways that I study the scripture, and I take a verse and I'll meditate on it, and I'll take it apart, sections by section. And I'll just take the words so that I can really understand what each of the words mean. And you can see this on your notes. That's what we're going to do with this verse. Uh, Romans 8.28, and the first one is that we know the Greek word is oida, and it means knowledge gained by facts or data. And so the other word for know in the Bible was, is gnosko, which means experience. You have an experience of it, but this is just facts and data. He's just saying, hey, we know by facts and data that God's going to work all things for our good. It's almost like he's saying, hey, just look at the facts. The facts would be, for instance, Hebrews 12.1 we got God's Word, which is uh, the facts of God's Word, the data of God's Word. It's historical, evidential, it's factual. And in, in Hebrews 12.1, it says, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, talking about a lot of Old Testament characters who had faith in God. And so he's just saying, we know knowledge gained by facts or data. And that's an important truth that we'll carry on as we kind of work through the rest of this. And he says, all things. We know all things, that's positive or negative, painful or pleasurable. So all things, good, good days, bad days, ugly days, 
will work together. It's, it is the sum total of all things. That's your next fill in the blank. And what he's saying here, we'll work together, that God is overruling, shaping, and mastering all of our circumstances. Now, I need to set something straight here because there, uh, and I'm going to hit you with some stuff here that I think you need to remember because there's a lot of very renowned preachers and teachers out there that believe in divine determinism. We do not believe in divine determinism, that God is the cause of evil and suffering. It's actually part of his plan. And he's the one that makes it really happen, really, in divine determinism. And um, we believe, we don't believe in divine determinism, we believe that all suffering is caused by man's rebellion against God. Man was given an, a, a, the ability to choose. You can't have love and relationship without freedom and choice, and with freedom and choice, there are consequences to our choices. And so it's important to know the distinction. It's very subtle. It's being taught by a number of uh, renowned preachers and teachers out there. And so all suffering is caused by, God, by man's rebellion against God, but in God's sovereignty. God's not a micromanager, but he is in control. And so in God's sovereignty, he restrains it, he limits it, and he uses it for our good and his glory, miraculously, amazingly. And that's why he's saying at the very beginning of this, hey, we know this, facts and data. We've got the evidence that all things, positive or negative, painful or pleasurable, work together, sum total of everything. Now, my wife, for my birthday this last year in November, she made me my favorite pie, coconut cream pie. And, and quite honestly, I'll take any pie. Okay? Anybody there with me? You just, you'll take any pie, any homemade pie. But coconut cream pie, I love it. I don't like it with the meringue stuff that's on the top. Oh, that wrecks the pie, doesn't it? It's like, oh, my goodness. So she doesn't do that for me. She, gives, she has homemade, homemade whipped cream on top of it. Oh, it makes it even better. And uh, so she made me this coconut cream pie. And uh, if you would lay out, if you laid out all the ingredients on the kitchen counter, you've got flour, baking soda, raw eggs, vanilla extract, coconut, sugar, and that's about all I could come up with unless I talked to her and she could tell me more, okay? So that's about all I could come up with. But almost everything that goes into a coconut cream pie by itself tastes terrible. I mean, if you take it individually, take a bite of this, take a bite of that, it doesn't taste all that good. But a delicious metamorphosis takes place when Nancy skillfully mixes the ingredients in just the right amounts and bakes them at the perfect temperature. And the final product is that Nancy killed me with deliciousness. Oh, my goodness. And so here's what I want you to understand. When he talks about the sum total of all things, God knows exactly what you need, every detail of your life. And then he bakes it at the perfect temperature through the difficulties that we face. And he, he's, what he's wanting us to understand is that God is at work passionately, purposely, and powerfully in the best and the worst 
of times doing a thousand things that we can't see with our finite minds. He's always at work in your life, whether you can see him or not. He's at work. And he's doing this for, here's the next fill in the blank, for good, for our good. How do we know that? Look at verse 29. You always read verses in, in their context, and so in, in the context, he gives you the reason, the good that he's doing. Verse 29, conform to the image of God. That's where we get that idea, that word conform means kind of this metamorphosis, this, this life transformation. Conform to the image of God. So verse 29 explains verse 28. And so here's what I, I need to clarify here. He's not promising better life circumstances. He's promising better life regardless of your circumstances. Now, he can give us better life circumstances, and many times he does. In fact, look at our lives. We've got a lot of great circumstances in our lives currently. And in fact, he tells us in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven love to give good gifts to those who ask him? So he does give us better circumstances. There are great things that he loves. He loves to to pour gifts into our lives, relationally, physically, emotionally, all kinds of stuff. But that's not what he's promising here. He's not promising better life circumstances. He's promising a better life in spite of your circumstances. And this better life comes from being more and more like Christ. Let me ask you this question. Don't you think Don't you think that as you become more and more like Christ, you'll be more lovingly honest and humble with people? You'll be really good in relational conflict, working through issues with other people? Yeah, Jesus was. How about this? The more you become more like Christ, don't you think you'll be more steady in adversity, calm in crisis? You'll grieve Jesus was sad, but not without hope. That you'll be righteously angry when appropriate. We saw that in Jesus' life. That you'll be full of love and joy and peace, regardless of your circumstances. The picture of emotional and relational and psychological health, healing, and wholeness. Yeah, yes, that's Christ's likeness. That's what he wants for you. He wants to make you great. That's what he wants. He's going to put all the circumstances of your life together in such a way so that you become great. Just as the coconut pie, coconut cream pie killed me with deliciousness, he wants you to kill others with the beauty and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is having the kind of character that displays that Christ is more desirable and satisfying than all that life can give or suffering and death could ever take away. The people would look at your life regardless of what you're going through, that they would say, wow, I can tell by your life that Christ is better than the success you're experiencing, and he's bigger than any suffering you're going through because you're able to put him on display because you're more like Christ. 
and you've been made that way because of the work of Christ in your life through your circumstances, all things. And, and by the way, this is only for those, that's the next fill in the blank, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Anybody back there in the booth? Hey, push me just a tad if you would, please. I thought they were hiding back there. That way I can talk real quiet. You guys can still hear me. Can you guys hear me? Okay. I can talk quiet. It's really quiet in here today, isn't it? We don't have the air going. Anybody too warm here? No, you guys just, how many just right? Just right. Some of you didn't raise your hand. It's because you're asleep because my voice is putting you to sleep. Praise God. I hope you get good sleep. Just kidding. So this is for those, two times he says, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This promise is for every believer in Christ. And I've heard unbelievers actually use that verse. Well, all things will work together. It's like, huh? That's not for you. Now, I wouldn't say that to them. I say that about them behind their back. Okay. No, at some point, I'd like to explain that to them. He says, where, where do you get that? Help me to understand that. Well, I've just seen that in the past. And whatever. It's, this is actually just for believers. The promise is for every believer that, that loves God and is called according to his purpose. The key is to truly love him and live according to his purpose. Now, here's the deal. You've heard me say this many times before. We don't love and live his purpose because he makes life better, because he gives us better life circumstances. That would be like marrying someone for their money. We love and live his purpose because he's better than life. Because we find such deep satisfaction in him regardless of what's going down in our life. That's Psalm 63, 3. And so let me ask you this question. What is the... Uh, Old Testament, what verse in the Old Testament is the Romans 8.28 verse? Anybody? Genesis 50.20. Who said that? Good job. I'll put a star by your name. That's right. So Genesis 50.20, how many now that you think about it, you know that? You know that? You knew that? Okay. So Genesis 50.20 is the Old Testament Romans 8.28 and are you familiar with the context? This is Joseph. This is a phenomenal verse. This is Joseph looking into the eyes of his perpetrators, his brothers who abused the living daylights out of him. They, they abused him. It was violent what they did to him. And he looks them into the eyes and says these words, you intended to harm me. So he's in touch with reality not a denial of reality. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, why was he able to say that? Why was he able to say that? Because he knew, as we need to know, that our lives are not in the grip of blind chance or fate, but in the hands of the creator and the sustainer of the universe 
who in his perfect love always wants what is best for us, in his infinite wisdom always knows what is best for us, and in his unlimited power will always do what is best for us. Those are three attributes you need to be, be, become very intimate with as it relates to God if you're going to get through difficulties. His perfect love, infinite wisdom, unlimited power. And he's always working for our good. And, and, and what you have in this statement, and as you uh, read some of the verses around this statement, there's no hint of bitterness, self-pity, or hopelessness in Joseph. Now let's kind of go back into the story of Joseph just briefly here so that you understand what he went through. And, and if Joseph hadn't been betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and forgotten in prison for years, he would have never escaped his own deadly character flaws, never would have been able to redeem his own family from generations of deep sins, nor would he have been able to save thousands of people from famine. Pretty amazing story. You intended to harm me. God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God wants that same story for you and I. That's the Romans 8.28 verse. So no matter what you've gone through in 2021 or 2020 or whatever, the enemy intended it for harm, but God intended it for good so that you can see many lives touched through your life. So there can be a redemption not only in your life, but in other people's lives through your life. He's, he's working, working for our good. My bad things will work for my good. So God often uses our troubles to rescue us from our own flaws and make us great. He wants to make you great. He wants you to become more like Christ. As enormous pressure turns coal into diamonds and fire turns ore into gold, our experiences of suffering can make us more like Jesus. That's the first point. Now, to be able to live out that first point, you've got to understand the second point here. So my bad things will work out for my good. That deals with my past, getting over bitterness. Here's the next one. My truly, it's not, it doesn't say truly. I should have said truly in there. You can write that in. But my truly good things can never be taken from me. This has to do with my present. This eliminates complaining and self-pity. Now, I need to make a distinction between eternal good things and temporal good things. This does not mean your temporal good things. You're going to lose every temporal good thing. And we have a lot of good temporal good things, like marriages and kids and money and all of that. Eventually, you're going to lose all of that. And it could be at your death. You're going to lose it all. It'll be gone. You may lose some of that before your death. I mean, even in our church family this last year, we did the funeral of numerous people that they weren't expecting to lose their loved one, and they did. And, it was, and, and that loved one was a really good thing in their life. Still rocked their world to a certain degree. But, but even in the midst of that, the truly good things, the eternal things, could not be taken from them, and that's what got them through and continues to get them through the loss of those temporal things. Make sense? So if we make our temporal things more important than our eternal things, and we lose our temporal things, it's going to devastate us. But if our eternal things are more important than our temporal things, it's our eternal things that are going to get us through the temporal, the, the loss of the temporal things. And we will lose 
We will lose every temporal thing eventually. It's just inevitable. Hate to be the bearer of bad news starting off the year, but that's, that's reality. That's reality, and so it's important to keep that in mind. So the good things that can never be taken from us are throughout this chapter, chapter 8. In fact, this is a great chapter, so we're just, we're just picking out just a few verses here, and so let's look at verse 29 and 30. We're going to get into a little controversy here just for a moment. We already did, but we're going to do a little bit more. If you probably read this, you probably saw, if you heard in our reading. He says, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined... So those two words, foreknew and predestined, can be a bit controversial, but I'm going to explain to you what we've always believed here at Desert Breeze so that you can square off with those that would teach something otherwise. Just It's important for you to know. So for those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Notice what he's predetermined, that we would be conformed. It's not salvation. These are people who already have salvation. It's important to keep that in mind. But to be conformed to the image of his son, that's sanctification he's talking about there. In order that he might be the firstborn among the brothers. Talking about Jesus, his rescue effort, what he did. He came and lived. He died the death we should have died. Lived the life we should have lived. He died in our place for our sins. He's just making it very clear. He just kind of puts it in the middle there. This is, this is the gospel. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you could understand these truths that he just said, I'm telling you, you can face any difficulty. This is the eternal good things that can never be taken from you, and it'll get you through anything. So, so why does Paul use past tense verbs in these verses? Do you notice they're all past tense? Every one of them. Talking about people really actually in the past. Now remember the context is the spirit-filled life in suffering. And in verse 28, remember Paul says, for we know, here's the facts, here's the data, God works all things. And then what he's doing in verses 29 through 30, listen to me, Paul is providing evidence for this claim in former generations of believers of God's trustworthiness. So these are believers in the past. He's using past tense verbs. So let's walk through each of these because they all apply to us even today. So the word for know, there's a broad range of lexical. Uh, when you look at your lexicon and look at the broad range of definitions for any of these words, but for this word, one of them is it can mean... Uh, it can mean to have known in the past. Those people he knew in the past, so past tense. Or it can mean also foreloved. So here's what it is. Here's your fill in the blank. So for no, God sets his love on us. That's what it, it can mean. I believe that's what it means. God sets his love on us. And we know that, 1 John 4, 19. So it's really talking about God's preemptive love. We love him because... He first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. We loved him because he first loved us. If you love God, it's because he loved you first. He came after you. And we see that, we saw that in the story of the prodigal sons, 15th chapter of Luke. Remember what we just studied the last three, four weeks? Yeah, what did the father do when he saw the, the younger son coming home? He ran out to him <laughs> and smothered him with kisses. 
It's an amazing story of the preemptive love of the father. And then what does he do to the elder brother that refused to come into the party? He went out there and beat the living daylights out of him. Isn't that how it goes? You better get yourself in that party. How dare you treat your younger brother like this? He's come home. He didn't do that. No, he went out there and pleaded with him with great degree of compassion. He loved him. Preemptive love. Listen to me. He's put his love on you. You're an object of his love. That's why he created you. You're created to have relationship with him. Do you hear that? You're not going to be satisfied until you respond to that love and you give him love back. There's not a better life than to understand how much he loves you and then respond in like manner. And then it goes on. It says predestined. Ooh, here's a good one. Predestined. It means predetermined. God has a glorious plan for us in Christ. Now, there are those that are renowned very popular teachers and speakers out there that would define predestination like this. They would say that God has predetermined before the foundation of the world. He has predetermined before the foundation of the world those that are going to heaven and those are going to hell. He's already, it's a done deal. He has predetermined that. So if you're going to hell, you're not chosen, you're not predetermined, oh well. You're out of luck if he didn't choose you. You think the Bible teaches that? No, absolutely not. Actually, it turns God into being very unjust and a monster. Would you line up your kids and only pick one or two of them? If you have a house full of kids or grandkids, pick one or two and say, ah, the rest of you are on your own. That's that predestination. So predestination that before the foundation of the world... God has already chosen those that are going to heaven and those are going to hell. That's that's predestination as taught by many renowned teachers and it's picking up speed in America today. Here's what we teach. We've always taught this, that predestination means that God has predetermined that those who are in Christ are going to heaven and those outside of Christ are going to hell. And in fact, one of the text that's often used is Ephesians chapter 1 where it talks about we're chosen and we're predetermined or we've got predestination but if you read that text very carefully with no preconceived ideas you'll see something in there some 12 times in about 14 verses and it says in Christ we are predetermined in Christ we are predetermined we are chosen in Christ over and over again we are in Christ those that are in Christ that's the key So before the foundation of the world, God predetermined. By the way, this was not some, you know, this whole fall thing. He gave us a choice. He created his objects of love. We rebelled against him, created a mess, and then God didn't say, oh, my goodness, wringing his hands, pacing the corridors of heaven. (laughs) What am I going to do? He already knew what was going down. He knew it wouldn't go well, and it still broke his heart, but he already had a plan And it was through his son. His son is the chosen one. And those who put their faith in him are part of the chosen people. The Bible's clear about that. In fact, it even says in Ephesians chapter 1, when you get to verse 13, it basically tells us how the gospel came to us. The gospel was preached to you. He's talking about the church in Ephesus. Same for us. Gospel was preached to you. You believed the gospel. 
and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Notice the sequence of events. Typically, double predestination is what it's called, where God's already determined those that are going to heaven and those that are going to hell is also taught uh, regeneration precedes faith, and that's simply not true. No, you put your faith in Christ, and then you are regenerated, and, it's, and you can see that even in verse 13 of Ephesians. Okay, we could spend a lot more time on that, but here's the idea that you need to walk away with. So God sets his love on us. Here's the next one. God has a glorious plan for us in Christ. He has an amazing plan for us in Christ. And then we're called. And so there would be those that would teach that he's only called a few, but I believe the Bible makes it very clear that he's called all but not all respond to that call. So God invites all, I didn't put that in your notes, you can put all in there, into that glorious plan. I'm gonna prove that to you by these next two verses, that he has called everyone to salvation. First Timothy 2, four through six, he says this, he talks about praying for you know, government, government officials, everybody, he says pray for everyone, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. How many people? All. All. What? He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. So double predestination is not biblical. Widely preached. You need to be aware. Be prepared. And know what you believe. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why this mess? Why doesn't God do something about it? He is. He will. He has through his son. One of these days, it'll be over. But he's patient. Can you imagine if he came back before you became a Christian? Aren't you glad that he he waited? Okay, God, I'm in. It's good. You can come back now. That's rude. What about lost loved ones and friends? Oh, they're on their own. I'm in. That's enough. No, that's not how you feel. God's patient. And this is what it says. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Double predestination? Are you kidding me? No way. It's available to all. And then justified. God declares us righteous in his sight. Oh my goodness, there's so much we could say about that. We spent the last few weeks talking about this. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 just says that all of our sin was placed on him and we received his perfect righteousness, his record. We stand before God completely righteous. Romans 8.15-17 goes into great, deal, great detail over what we have in him. We talked about that last weekend. Here's what, what, what I pray that you have ringing in your soul in 2022. You hear him saying to you, you are my beloved child. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. I pray that you begin to meditate on that and reflect on the implications of that. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Who cares what people say about you? 
the only eyes in the universe that matter, sees you, loves you, adores you, gave his life for you. You're adopted into his family. You're a child of God. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Oh, my goodness. No greater significance than that. And that's what justification means. So we're justified. He declares us righteous in his sight. We're sanctified. We're becoming more and more like Christ. Guess what? Guess what? And he's going to keep working on you until you become more and more like Christ. He's not going to stop either. You ever feel like he's given up on you? Hope not, because that's not biblical. It tells us uh, in Philippians 1.6 that the work he began in you, he's going to carry it on to completion. And, uh, and he wants to get you to the place where in Acts 4.13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished because they realized that they had been with Jesus. I'm telling you, the key to becoming more like Jesus is being with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus in 2022 unlike ever before, and you'll become more like him. And that's becoming sanctified. And then the last one is glorified, and that takes us to the next point. But before we get to the next point, I've got a couple things I want to tell you. So the best is yet to come. And so glorified goes to that next point. But so the truly good things that can never be taken from us, God sets his love on us. God has a glorious plan for us in Christ. God invites us all into his glorious plan. God declares us righteous in his sight. God's plan for us is to be like Christ. And then God will complete his plan in eternity. The best is yet to come. Your circumstances not only can't take these good things from you, but in fact, bad circumstances will just drive you deeper into these good things. Have you noticed that? So all of, our, all of us have a tendency to build our life on the temporal things, and we build our identity, and then when those temporal things start collapsing around us, what does it do? Typically for Christians, it drives them back into their eternal things. And that's a very good thing. I like what Hudson Taylor says. It's not how great the pressure is, but where the pressure lies, whether it comes between you and God or presses you near his heart. That's why it tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, his power is made perfect in our weakness. How's that? Because it drives me into those things that are eternal that I can never lose. So remember, it's not the suffering that destroys us. It's our sin. It's our bitterness, self-pity, and hopelessness in our suffering that destroys us. So what difference would this make? What would that look like in my life if I actually lived out these, these truly good things that can never be taken from me, these eternal things? First thing that came to mind as I was asking myself that question was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love those guys. Daniel chapter 3 Verses 16 through 18 and 25, fiery furnace. You guys familiar with the story? King Nebuchadnezzar, he's an egotistical maniac, builds an image of gold of himself and says, I want everybody, when you hear the music, to bow down to it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not doing that. We're not serving you. We serve God, the true and living God. And, and so he, he brought them in. And challenged them. And, and this is their response. I love their response. It's beautiful. Oh, my goodness. This is how I want to respond to all the fiery furnaces. This is what they say. God can save us. He will save us. But even if he doesn't save us, we're not bowing down. You hear the attitude? I love it. Humble confidence. 
Their humble confidence is in God and not in their limited understanding of what they think he'll do. That's important. We're not so arrogant to believe that we know what God is up to. We don't defy you because we think we're going to live. We defy you because live, live or die, he's our indescribably great and unimaginably good God. And he loves us like nobody else loves us. And he has given us a purpose for our life and meaning in our life like nothing else. And we love him and adore him and serve him and find our deepest satisfaction in him. Now, when King Nebuchadnezzar received the defiant response, he had the, the three tied up, thrown into the furnace that was turned up seven times hotter. I love that because it was so hot it killed the soldiers who cast them in. But when the king looked into the fire, what he saw shook him to the core of his being, a fourth man who looked like a son of the gods. Who did he see in there? Jesus. Now listen to me. If God never did another thing for you, if he never did another, th- another thing for you, these good things would be enough to praise him, serve him your whole life, for the rest of your life, all the way into eternity with him. What we just talked about. Bad things work out for my good, past, get over bitterness. My truly good things can never be taken from me, present, gets rid of complaining and self-pity. My best things are yet to come. That has to do with the future. And this eliminates worry, despair, and hopelessness. And that's where we get the word glorified. That's what the word glorified means. Not only are we headed to heaven, but we get a slice of heaven on earth. And he guarantees that in verses 31 and 32. We'll use that for our, our communion that we're going to do just in a few moments. But uh, he says, there, if God is for us, who can be against us? If he didn't spare his own son and taken care of our worst problem, our worst problem was to be eternally separated from him. If he didn't spare his own son, listen to me, he won't spare anything else in taking care of us. That's the guarantee. And so, you can live 40 days without food, just a few days without water, four to six minutes without oxygen, but you can't live, live a single second without hope. Human beings are unavoidably hope-based creatures. And how you live in the present is inevitably shaped by what you believe about your future. That's why I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, there are far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Whatever you're leaving behind in 2020 or 21, that was 21, wasn't it? Yeah, or whatever, all the way back. Whatever you're leaving behind He says, there are far greater things ahead than any we leave behind. I actually believe when you really understand hope, we should be like children who can't wait for Christmas morning. I I don't know about you, but around the Davis home growing up, we couldn't hardly wait. We couldn't go to sleep the night before because we knew that there would be so many gifts and so much fun and so much celebration that we couldn't hardly sleep. Now, the word that the Bible uses for hope is not wishful thinking. I hope so. hope this is a better future. No. It's almost like I know so. It's a confident, joyful expectation. That's what he wants us to live. I think that honors him as we head into 2022. Here's what, what you need to know. A couple last things. 
then we'll take communion. There are greater levels of intimacy and wholeness, and I should have added to that also ministry and missions, because it kind of covers our first four Gs of our 5G process of full devotion to Christ. You can add ministry and missions. There are greater levels of intimacy, that's G1, that's a genuine Christian, and wholeness, that's G2, that's a growing Christian, and then ministry is G3, that's a giving Christian, and then G4, uh, is a going Christian, that's missions. So if, if you're not familiar with that, that's the first, that's the four G's, there's actually five G's. The fifth G is a glorifying, you do all that for God's glory. And so what we, we teach here, and I take you through the DB Life, if you've never taken the DB Life, you're gonna wanna sign up for it, we'll be offering that at the end of this month. We are in January, aren't we? Okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just came all of a sudden. So. So I would encourage you to take that class because we walk you through the 5G process of full devotion to Christ because we believe that full devotion to Christ and fullness of life are one and the same pursuit. You're gonna find so much more meaning, hope, happiness, purpose in your life when you become more and more fully devoted to him. That's why I said here, there are greater levels of intimacy and wholeness, ministry and missions awaiting you in this life that are beyond your wildest dreams. That's what he has in store for us. A little slice of heaven on earth. Here's what our life should look like, Proverbs 4.18. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. So as I get older and older and more broken down, my life should get brighter and brighter, and so should yours. Brighter and brighter. Listen to me. There is never, ever anything boring about God. There is never, ever anything boring about God because there is always more of God to know, more of him to experience, more of him to enjoy, and more of him to share with others. Nothing more exciting, nothing more exhilarating. That's what you need to be busy about, getting to know him and letting others know about him. That's the first thing. Here's the next one. I I tried to put this, I I, I apologize for this run-on sentence. It's a really super long sentence. But I was trying to define, you know, when we go to be with the Lord, this is my best run at it. Life in glory with our Savior will heal all wounds, and this is all biblical, answer all of our questions, and make everything sad come untrue, and be all the more glorious for having once been lost as we live happily ever after. So when you take your last breath on earth, As a believer, you take your first breath in heaven and you will look into the eyes of the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without you. And you'll be able to put your hand in his nail-scarred hands, your fingers, and you'll be able to see his pierced feet for you. No one loves you like him. And at that moment, he will heal all wounds and answer all questions. And that's where happily ever after. I know we got books that say happily ever, and they lived happily ever after. No, they didn't, okay? (laughs) They didn't. They died, okay? He died or she died, okay? That's the reality. No, happily ever after is with him for all eternity. That's the happily ever after we all long for. I can hardly wait. We are much closer than you think. The signs of the end times are increasing with intensity and frequency. I don't know if you've looked around lately, 
this pandemic and all the craziness that we're going through and all, you know, the tornadoes and the, and the homes burning up in Colorado and the, just the craziness that's going on. Listen, those are signs of the times. We're running out of time. You can study about it in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. But I say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Let's, let's pray. Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Father God, we, we thank you that by grace through faith in Jesus, our bad things will work for our good and our truly good things can never be taken from us and our best things are yet to come. May these astounding promises be the foundation of our lives in 2022 so that when we face suffering, we would become sweeter rather than bitter over our past, more courageous rather than complaining and full of self-pity in the present and have a confident, joyful expectation rather than have worry and hopelessness and despair about the future. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious and beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. We got three stations up here. Make your way up to one of the stations. Grab both of the cups. You got their double cup. Take it back to your seat. Here's what I would ask you to think about, reflect on. What is God speaking to you this morning through this message? Which of those three statements do you need the most as you face 2022? So Romans 8, 31 and 32, what you're holding in your hands, these elements represent and really help us to understand these verses. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> if God is for us, what can be against us? It's like, ah, bring it on. Whatever I have to face in 2022, it doesn't matter. If he's for me, what can be against me? That's, that's what that means. And so how do we know that? How do we know this is all true? Well, he backed it up with the fact that if he didn't spare his own son in taking care of our worst problem, he's not going to spare anything else in taking care of you. You know that. He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, along with him, freely give us all things? Freely give us all things. It's pretty amazing. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he, gave, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. God is for us, who can be against us? There's a good memory verse, just that one right there, okay? To face 2022. If God's for me, who can be against me? Bring it on. He can save me. He will save me. Even if he doesn't save me, I'm good with him because he's going to take care of me one way or the other. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Bring on the fiery furnaces. I'm ready because I've got him. Next weekend, new teaching series through the book of Colossians. I'd encourage you to start reading through that book. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
We're going to learn about how we can have wholeness and completeness in Christ Jesus. Here's my blessing for you, Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Confident, joyful expectation in 2022 unlike ever before in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. See